to uh, talk this week um, and perhaps kind of give ourselves quite a lot of rope with which to hang ourselves because uh, we're talking about um, the problem with online criticism in film uh, and I think perhaps it gives us an opportunity to reevaluate what we're adding to the debate, Ed. Yes, uh, or the very least to kind of give uh, people who... Also, who practice film criticism, an extra excuse to hate us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this isn't really spurred on by one thing that's made us kind of want to address it, um, but it's kind of part of a general shift uh, away from what's traditionally known as uh, long-form uh, criticism. Or, I mean, I don't, I don't see what we do as criticism. Uh, our show is primarily there to entertain. Uh, but also uh, to educate is infotainment. Uh, I, I believe the kids are calling it. Um, uh, but in this general sense, the most popular movie websites um, are and news websites uh, about films are not staffed by journalists uh, mm. and are perhaps uh, you know not journalism or criticism. Discuss. Yeah, well, I think that. In the cases of a lot of those sort of sites where, you know, they essentially do, you know, we've talked about in the past, you know, sites like Slash Film, which do offer kind of decent criticism as part of their package, but make most of their, get most of their page views from, you know, uh, listicles, Mm -hmm. which is a a phrase that I really, really hate. Uh, But, you know, they're just kind of, or or something like uh, What Culture, which is... uh, a horrible, horrible site that just has these kind of multi-page articles that aren't really terribly informative and their their sole kind of purpose is to make you click through like 20 or 30 pages to get fairly basic information. Uh, and it's kind of a whole uh, degrading of kind of popular film criticism because obviously online there's still plenty of sites that do really great long-form film criticism but it's becoming less kind of economically viable for people to do so and it ends up falling on the, the the onto kind of like talented amateurs rather than people who actually are own or uh run uh, genuine kind of film sites and the, the film sites that do that tend to get squeezed economically to kind of conform to the, the general standard yeah i mean it's also a move away from just basic journalistic principles um, I'm going to cite an example today that I read on Twitter. It was a tweet that just said, are Disney releasing the original Star Wars films on Blu-ray? Now, if Disney were planning to release the uh, original films on Blu-ray, they might say they're going to do it, and then they might do a press release about how they're going to do it, and then websites or news outlets would take that news and then disseminate it to their viewers. Now, um, I clicked on this article, and at first it just said, Disney own Star Wars now. They're going to release them on Blu-ray. We've had two sources say that that's going to happen. And then it went down to quote another source that said, well, actually, 
the rights re- remain, the distribution rights for the original Star Wars films remain in uh, 20th Century Fox's hands and will do forever. Um, so if any um, deal is done, it has to be done um, as, a, as a joint effort between Disney and Fox. And if the people who had the, the sources quoted in the first instance didn't even know who owned the rights, then there's probably not true, this story. So I clicked on a story that wasn't a story. I clicked on uh, basically uh, the early stages of information or rumour that turned out in the article to be disproven. What is that? What, that's just a waste of everyone's time. What's the point? Mm. It's, it, that is a reporting of a non-story. I had exactly the same sort of thing uh, the other week where this thing went around on a bunch of websites, including Slash Film, which is the one I, I... I basically went on Slash Film to look for articles that kind of conformed this idea of, of not reporting, reporting, mm-hmm. you know, things that aren't news, that are just things that, you know, fill up space. And it was one which was uh, Zack Snyder puts Star Wars characters into uh, Batman versus Superman. And then I was like... Oh, what? That sounds weird. So I looked on it and it was basically saying that Zack Snyder had been dicking around with an iPad and taking pictures of Star Wars and uh, and Batman figures and, you know, using sort of tilt shift to make it look like it was a kind of a, a live action thing when it was just a scale model and thought, well, that's a fun thing that I wouldn't mind someone like retweeting, you know, Zack Snyder's Twitter account of that thing, you know, because that's just a funny thing. It's not something that I think requires like a 200 word article on a website prominently displayed on a website and then being called news especially because then they have to try and justify it in some sort of broader contract context as if to kind of say you know what does this mean for batman versus superman it means nothing Mm. except maybe that Zack snyder isn't entirely focused on the job at hand yeah yeah or he's having a really long lunch break yeah (laughs) but it's not it's categorically not news Mm. um there was a, an article, um, I mean, I don't want this podcast to be us ragging on Slash Film, but hey, why not? Um, there was an article uh, recently published which caused a bit of a brouhaha um, on Slash Film, and they, they published an article called, called 107 Reasons to See Boyhood, the film, the, the Linklater film Boyhood. And <laughs> if you clicked on said article, I mean, it seems like a, a strange number of reasons to give, Um you clicked on it, and the first thing you're told when you click on the article is the writer says, go fuck yourself, basically. Why do you need 107 reasons to see Boyhood when you're going to waste your time watching Transformers 4? Uh, you should be supporting independent film, you fucking idiot. It was a very kind of, like, confrontational piece. And the problem is, and this is all brilliantly taken apart by uh, Ali Gray over at the Shiznit. Uh, it's a great piece. Uh, called everything's awful uh, when you're a snob um kind of points out the fact that if slash film are joking then that's not particularly funny in the first place and secondly like they have themselves done over 80 articles on transformers <laughs> four <laughs> uh, including one i think that was called like 50 or 60 reasons uh, sorry 50 or 60 things we learned from the set of transformers four um, mm. And they only did, I think, like 10 articles on Boyhood, which is a film that has been filming for more than a decade. Uh, so, you know, what's that about? Yeah, it's definitely, 
yeah, if it's done seriously, which I think it it was, because like you say, there's not really any humour to it, mm. uh, other than the the humour of just telling people to go fuck themselves, which isn't really jokes so much as it is uh, insulting people and hoping to get a rise out of them, mm-hmm. which may be the the purpose of it because that gets it uh, shared and retweeted. But uh, you know, if it's if it's serious, then it's massively hypocritical uh, because the site is essentially. Uh, denigrating its readers for doing the thing that it, it, they themselves have been doing for years, which is writing about the stuff that's really high profile and that, you know, most people want to, will want to, you know, kind of read about. And that's fine because, you know, if you're, if you're a film site and you kind of cater and write about mainstream film, then, you know, there's few things more mainstream than the Transformers films, which are hugely, hugely popular. And, you know, it makes sense for you to write 60 or something, art- 60 or 70 articles about about the Transformers films, but then you can't turn around and then say, you know, oh, you people are terrible because you're not supporting this little film about a kid growing up over 12 years because, you know, they've not been writing about it and, you know, they've not written about it because it's not going to get as many page views. Mm. So they're essentially denigrating people for the fact that they've been following their own business model and and trying to act superior about the way that they do, they do business. Yeah, it seemed yeah, it seemed a really odd thing for them to run. Um and yeah, considering they build their entire kind of uh raison d'etre around hey, fifty things about this. Uh why don't you check this bit out after the jump? That's the thing that really annoys me. You know, breaking a simple story down over two pages just to get double the double the clicks is pretty kind of uh that's pretty low. Yeah, and Total Film do that quite a lot with their their lists, like their top fifty lists. They'll occasionally include like a page that lists all of them, but generally it's a slideshow, and you have to go through all of them. And it's you know sometimes the writing's very good, but generally it just kind of feels like you're wasting people's time and just trying to get more clicks. Yeah, which you know is is nakedly commercial, and that's fine because you know everyone's got to make a living. But uh, the, there's kind of a an attempt to try and act respect, uh, respectable about it, which I don't think is kind of warranted and just ends up looking horribly hypocritical. Yeah, and I mean, well, let's not, like, be around the bush. Everyone likes a good list. Um, hmm. I mean, uh, we ourselves are uh, kind of uh, balls deep in the uh, the <laughs> shot reverse shot alternate 100. But, you know, we spent months <laughs> uh, going through that and picking it and kind of having a purpose for it um, uh, to kind of exist. Um, rather than just, you know, knocking out, hey, uh, 20 best haircuts in movies uh, and, you know, you know, getting it pinned to the front of Slash Films, page two. Or, you know, you get something like, you know, the AV Club who have kind of built a lot of their, their kind of brand is based around their, their inventories and their kind of various lists, but they're often kind of really weirdly specific. Mm. Like, uh, you know, they ran one this the other week, which was, you know, songs that summarize the entire plot of a film which is kind of delightfully kind of geeky and involved a lot of uh a lot of research and you know each of the entries is kind of well considered and you know they can be interesting and very informative like i for example never realized that the song ghetto superstar originated in the warren Beatty film bullworth oh yeah i did it was, and- the video had uh warren Beatty in it Ah, but I also never realised that uh, Old Dirty Bastard's verse on that is him in the character of 
Bullworth. Wow. Uh, which is, uh, you know, that's a, a strange kind of two people playing that role, ODB and uh, WB, mm. as he's known in the rap community. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like stuff like that is, is very kind of interesting. And, you know, it's fine because it's kind of built around sort of more substantive pieces and, and review long-form criticism. But, you know, too many places you know, just do lists that are not terribly informative or, you know, don't really have any kind of analysis. It's just, here's a list of things. Here's some kind of bland facts about them. Please keep clicking. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of awful that like, that's the economy that's being driven by this. Um, Whereas, you know, uh, you can read a a wonderful piece of film writing on another site um, and, you know, it's not earning anyone any money and they've spent, you know, 10 times the effort and 10 times the, the kind of brain power to actually put it down. Yeah, I think it's it's just a, a general problem in, in journalism in general, which has over the sort of recent years really started to infect film criticism just because, uh, you know, as the newspapers go, so go everyone else really. And, you know, I was looking at an article on the Huffington Post today which was Chris Pratt has joined the Ice Bucket Challenge. And it was, you know, a couple of hundred words about the fact that Chris Pratt had had ice cold water put, uh, poured on his head. And the YouTube video of it is very funny and charming because Chris Pratt is a very funny and charming man. Professional and goof, does, Chris Pratt. Yeah, and uh, you get to see Anna Faris pour lots of uh, freezing cold water on him, which is quite amusing. Uh, and and more amusing than their previous collaborations, as we've talked about before. Um, and you know, there's just this kind of sense that you know that that YouTube video is fine in itself. It does not need the context of an article on a supposed source of journalism. Uh, you know, it just feels horribly, uh, you know, sort of horribly time wasting for them to go about doing it that way. Mm. Yeah, and that has permeated just film criticism in general. Is it's more towards clicks and things like that and and less folk and 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 like i say i think it's fine if sites want to do that but the problem is that at a certain point just doing lists and things that or or sort of pieces just trolling fanboys or whatever to get people's attention becomes the raison d'etre for most sites and then they just stop doing the criticisms that's actually worthwhile Mm. um a refreshing alternative to uh, the the kind of listicles um, and general guff that's uh, populating the internets these days um, is I saw a film at Dotfest, uh, which was a wonderful piece of work. It was a, a documentary, a new documentary from uh, Martin Scorsese and uh, David Tedeschi, his long term. I think he's his editor. He worked on the No Direction Home and the George Harrison film with him. Um, they've made a film uh, called The Fifty Year Argument which is uh, about the New York Review of Books, uh, which I didn't know an awful lot about. I was kind of aware that it was a thing, but didn't really know what it was, but uh, essentially kind of um, uh, published originally under the guise of being a literary journal. It now just exists purely uh, as a home for kind of long-form ideas, basically. And anyone who's anyone who's written for it, I mean, uh, they ran down uh, the list of people who had done it uh, and uh, written for it, had articles published in there. People like Sol Bellow, uh, Susan Sontag, Truman Capote, uh, Robert Penn Warren, Margaret Atwood, Vladimir Nabokov, John Updike, Gore Vidal, Norman Mailer, James Baldwin, Michael uh, Michael Shabon, uh, Noam Chomsky. So, like some actually 
good people. Um, and it was a, you know, really good to see this film uh, uh, at Dogfest, um, kind of making that argument for uh, the long form existing. But there was a kind of a note of sadness to it that it was perhaps a dying art and that you watch these, you know, all these names come across, all these people who have written for this thing and, and, and the great articles they've written. And then you think about, hmm, 67 reasons to see Fast and Furious 8. <laughs> and it kind of just then starts to ring a little hollow. Yeah, I mean, there are bastions of that kind of work still out there. I think that, you know, the stuff that's been happening at the, the Dissolve over the course of its first year mm. suggests that there are still places for, uh, for you know, interesting and long-form criticism. And, you know, our, our former co-host Adam Batty has done great things on his site, HopeLies.com which is pretty much solely dedicated to long-form uh, film criticism and, and, you know, does does a lot of really good, interesting work. So it's something that still exists out on the net, but there's just kind of a general sense that the people who have the best platform for promoting it just don't. Like, they don't really... They don't really offer the kind of opportunity. And, you know, some sites have kind of started doing that. Things like, you know, BuzzFeed, you know, hired Alison Wilmore, who's you know, trying to use, you know, that site's huge success to uh, introduce more long-form reviews and things like that. And, you know, hopefully that experiment will work. But, you know, you kind of get the sense that Slash Film will never kind of uh, offer a home to kind of people to do genuinely kind of exhaustive and interesting and, you know, maybe kind of obscure but interesting uh, film writing in the way that you know happens at the dissolve or you know badass digest with you know some of their stuff you know these the the sites that are kind of that are huge and have this great kind of platform just aren't really using it to promote film criticism uh, in the way that it probably deserves mm. do you think that um film criticism is being a disservice being done a disservice by the fact that people practicing it now are amateurs uh, and in Many exceptions, uh, many sorry cases, rank amateurs um, who are not actually doing film criticism. They are essentially uh, just nitpicking. I do, yeah. I think it's 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 bad for film criticism. I think it's also bad just in general to kind of approach films in that way. You know, to kind of do lists that are just the uh, you know the idea being you know, everything that's wrong with Lucy, you know, or films that or that just kind of reviews that pick that film apart by saying, you know, oh, you know, the 10% uh, brain myth thing is is completely false, you know, therefore the film's terrible. It's like, no, that's not why the film's terrible. The film can be terrible for many, many reasons, but the fact that it's based on dubious science is not necessarily one of them because, like, Luke Besson has acknowledged that he knows that it's not true. It's just an interesting thing that he wanted to explore in a film. Mm. But if you take as if you don't you know want to engage with the film on its own terms and instead we'll just nitpick its science then then it's you're doing a disservice to the film and you're kind of breaking the contract that exists between a filmmaker and the audience which is they will create a world you will enter it and then you know if you enjoy it then you you will enjoy it and you'll take the the absurd the the uh you know, the absurdities and the logical inconsistencies and whatnot in stride and just think, okay, that's fine because I'm having a good time. But if you don't enjoy it, then you can kind of tear it to pieces for whatever reason you want. But I think that there are a lot of critics who don't 
kind of acknowledge that contract and go about it in the exact opposite way. They go in with some sort of axe to grind or some sort of kind of idea that they need to kind of pick something apart for logical inconsistencies before they acknowledge that, you know, oh, the acting's really good or it does all of these things well. Mm. And do you think there's a kind of a culture of of uh, kind of trying to... Um any kind of film that's that's kind of bold or takes a kind of some kind of like narrative risk uh kind of the one that springs to mind more recently is is looper uh mm. kind of uh, anything involving time travel instantly after that film came out everyone was like uh, well this is why it couldn't happen this is this is a plot hole that means that you know the, the end falls apart or you know mm. joseph gordon levitt is left-handed and bruce willis is right-handed or whatever and just like are you fucking serious? Do you know what I mean? What what, yeah. what is your fucking like? They must have been insufferable. They're, I bet the same people enjoy Jurassic Park, and like me as an enormous dinosaur nerd, uh, and you know it's just like uh, no, you know I mean I enjoy Jurassic Park as a film, uh, not a documentary. Uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? As much as I wish it was, uh, but if it if it was, you know. I don't think many of those species have been recognised or, or kind of uh, described to science, but uh, to to start picking apart the kind of the the narrative logic and 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 uh, kind of space time uh, physics of a time travel film is kind of fucking retarded. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I mean, this is something that I, I read an article that a film critic wrote about. Uh, you know, the idea of plot holes and the fact that people who write about plot holes aren't really describing narrative inconsistencies. They're often describing things that need to happen because if they don't, the film doesn't exist. Mm. Uh, And in the case of Looper, you know, the example that's cited is a lot of people said, well, why don't the mobsters just, you know, dispose of the body, the bodies in the sea or something like that, instead of sending them back in time. And then the answer of course is because then there's no fucking film. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the, the film doesn't exist if you do it that way and the film has to exist because you know that's the, a story needs to be told and unfold and whilst there may be more logical ways for this story for these kind of mobsters to go about their business this is the way that needs to happen for the particular story and you know people can kind of you know they can pick apart Looper for any sort of things but I think that people willfully going in and just kind of being like oh you know why why don't they do things differently? It's, it's it's the wrong way to approach it from a criticism point of well, you know, it shouldn't be, oh, they could have done this differently. It should be engaging it saying, okay, they did this thing. Does it do it well? Mm. Not they didn't do this thing that in I, my mind, in my movie, they would have done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that uh, like a bad plot hole can't kind of derail a film. Like, I mean, for me, the last Batman film, The Dark Knight Rises, um, mm-hmm. there were just too many things that were kind of, like, kind of just wildly convenient to not like to kind of jolt me out of the film, as it were. Um, sure. But I mean, I didn't then write a, a, like an article spread across fifty pages about all the plot holes, like someone did, uh, about what why The Dark Knight rises was ruined and i think that a lot for me it seemed to be a lot of the fact that the other two films seemed fairly watertight uh, and the third one you know seemed like they'd lost a few pages of the script somewhere i can definitely 
Yeah, I can definitely see what you mean. I think that there it gets into the point that I think when people kind of point out logical consistencies, it's often more because you're not as engaged by the drama Mm. that you kind of notice these things. Because, you know, when I watched, I think we talked about this when we did our Dark Knight Rises episode, like I didn't, you know, kind of notice it because I was having, you know, quite a good time with it. Uh, But, you know, the the second, you know, the Dark Knight has like just as many kind of consistent inconsistencies, like the entirety of the Joker's plan is built on people being in the right place at the right time and, you know, him incredibly insane things happening that, you know, would be impossible to orchestrate. But Heath Ledger is so much fun to watch Mm. and the film has such momentum that it doesn't matter that, you know, this stuff doesn't make sense because in the moment you're not thinking about, you know, oh, but, you know, how could he know that that person would be there at that point? You know, you're thinking wow, I'm having so much fun. And I think that, you know, in most cases, when people notice logical inconsistencies, the the problem with the film is not that it is inconsistent. The problem is that it's not engaging. And I think that an example of a film that we've talked about in the past, you know, something like Prometheus, which is a film that I find completely unengaging as as a horror, as a sci-fi, as uh, a little bit, you know, as kind of, you know, an examination of man's relationship with God. But it's so kind of uh the characters are so kind of blandly written and so dull that you know i can't engage with whatever they're doing so when for example you know the, the thing that everyone cites the uh biologist is like terrified of a dead alien but when he meets a live one he runs up to him and kind of starts kind of trying to attach himself to it and everything that's something that probably wouldn't have mattered that much if the character had been more interesting and better defined you know, because I'm sure, you know, if you watch Aliens, people or alien people in that do stupid fucking things. But, you know, it doesn't matter because the characters are interesting. And there it's a problem not with plotting, but a problem with kind of narrative and storytelling. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely a question of, of engagement um, for for kind of people who perhaps approach it in a more considered way. Um, the flip side to that argument um, where where would you stand given what we've said about the problem with online film criticism and kind of 21st century film criticism? Where do you stand on the Red Letter Media uh, videos on uh, the Star Wars prequels? Because um, they are hugely entertaining to watch. Um, mm. But they are essentially long-form nitpicking. Uh, I think that there they are, they are kind of embodying the thing we're talking about when we talk about engagement because they're not just they're saying oh this doesn't make sense what they're doing is saying this is why this thing doesn't work Mm. from the point of view of people who understand like basic storytelling and wanting to kind of illustrate the way that those films fail as kind of works of narrative and you know they do that thing you know the, the kind of the great moment for me is where they interview their friends and then say to them you know describe Han Solo without saying what he does and, you know, they say, you know, oh, you know, he's a rogue, he's, you know, he's kind of a bad boy and all this sort of thing. And then they say, and now describe Qui-Gon Jinn. And, like, they can't, and they and it's all about investigating the failures in the writing of making these characters even remotely interesting to spend any time with. And I think that they're not just kind of there pointing out the logical fallacies, although they do that, you know, quite entertainingly. 
I think they're more about saying why these films are really kind of unengaging and why they fail compared to the previous, uh, the, the original three films. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you think it's only going to get worse? Yes, probably. <laughs> right. Uh, just because... You know, the the it's it's a a form that is driven by uh, economics. Uh, you know, I think the internet, you know, is is driven by people who want information quickly, or they want information that's presented in kind of a bite sized way. And while there is definitely an a, a audience for long form criticism, and there is a, a a large audience of kind of dedicated cinephiles who will seek that stuff out and sites can survive based on that it's unlikely that those sites will become the place that most people go they will become niche and they will become you know dependent on a small dedicated audience which is probably the best way to do it because it ensures that those sites will probably be uh they will probably kind of survive more if they can stay relatively small but you know kind of subsist rather than becoming so big that they need to attract advertisers to pay a huge staff and they have to kind of water everything down mm. but I, I i find it hard to believe that unless you have kind of editors who come in and are willing to kind of shake things up and embrace a more long form uh style uh that that you know that kind of trend will be reversed you know last year uh you know the uh, david ehrlich who was the editor of uh, film.com which was a you know, a really good site, you know, really popular site, which I believe was owned by MTV. He kind of pushed for that sort of thing. He tried to make the articles more uh, in-depth and, you know, he tried to make it more kind of uh, more considered, but still entertaining. And he ended up getting fired. Right. Uh, I, I think that, you know, that's the problem, that sites that are kind of big and popular will end up, uh, you know, kind of squeezing out people who want to kind of be more individual you know and even that thing you know a slash film with boyhood you know boyhood is kind of a big is kind of a a a celebrated film and a high profile uh independent film and you know the the idea of writing articles about that make sense for a large site because it's something that you know a lot of people are talking about but they're not gonna get them writing about something like no coherence you know kind of a weird little sci-fi film that not many people are talking about you know, and that's why all that stuff kind of falls to individual bloggers or kind of sites like The Dissolve, which are on a much smaller scale, but are able to focus on a broader range of topics. Hmm. Yes. Well, this has all been very well considered, unlike some of the pieces we've been talking about. <laughs> um, and um, I think that we've uh, probably solved all of online film criticism's problems with this podcast. Yeah, we've given you a roadmap. If they don't, uh, if they don't follow it, then it's their fault, not ours. Yeah. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then uh, you can uh, subscribe to it on the iTunes. Um, and uh, if you really want to get a gold star, uh, leave us a review and rate the show, uh, so more people can find it, um, and they'll feel just as good as you have just having finished this episode. Uh, our next episode is uh, 66 Reasons to <laughs> Rejoice at the pictures uh, that have been released from the set of Jurassic World, uh, that are pictures of trees. Uh, and we're going to kind of analyse them and see if uh, Brad Pitt has been added to the cast update. He hasn't. 
Uh, let's see if you click on it anyway. Um, <laughs> and until then, uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>